On a snowy winter's morning, late 1904, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia's ferocious Minister of the Interior was being driven towards St. Petersburg's magnificent railway station in a two-horse, uncovered sleigh. Snow had been falling all night, making the roadway, uncleared as yet at this early hour, very heavy for the horses. It was still falling thickly. As the sleigh drew over to the left before making a turn, the footman noticed a peasant walking slowly on the edge of the pavement with his hands in the pockets of his sheepskin coat and his shoulders hunched up to his ears under the falling snow. On being overtaken, the peasant suddenly faced about and swung his arm. In an instant, there was a terrible shock, a detonation muffled in the multitude of snowflakes. Both horses lay dead and mangled on the ground. The coachman had fallen from the box, mortally wounded. The footman, who somehow survived, had no time to see the man in the sheepskin coat. After throwing the bomb, the man slipped into the surge of people all running to the scene of the explosion and vanished. The crowd assembled around the sledge. The minister, clambering unhurt into deep snow, saw the hostility on their faces and addressed them weakly in his colourless voice. I beg of you to keep off. For the love of God, I beg of you good people to keep off. It was then that a second, taller young man stepped out into the street. Walking up rapidly, he flung another bomb over the heads of the crowd. It struck the minister on the shoulder as he stooped over his dying servant, it fell between his feet, and then it exploded with a terrific, concentrated violence, striking him dead to the ground. The second bomber made away as swiftly as his accomplice. Through the falling snow, people just stared at this small heap of dead bodies lying upon each other near the carcasses of the two horses. Nobody dared approach. How do I know about this? The snow, the man in the sheepskin coat, his tall accomplice. How do I have an almost first-hand account of a murder that usually amounts to a single sentence in the history books? Well, it's because I do have a first-hand account, or the next best thing. I'm staring at a manuscript written in the curly, elegant hand of my great-grandpa, Joseph, inscribed on a thick, woven paper and running to over a hundred pages. This is the Resumer Files. I'm Jessica Dean, and I'm investigating one of history's great unsolved mysteries in six episodes. It's a tale of passion and betrayal that led to one of the great upheavals of the last century, the Russian Revolution. The Resumov Files, episode one, The Man in the Sheepskin Coat. Until it was placed into my unsuspecting hands one morning last spring, great-grandpa Joe's unfinished opus was just a bundle of pages wrapped in a wax covering. A little bit about me. I'm a news editor in the London office of a big news network what we call mainstream media these days. It's not as fancy as it sounds, but I'm a journalist when so many people are no longer able to pay their bills by being journalists, which is pretty cool and lucky. If you'd asked me six months ago about early 20th century Russian history, I could not have cared less until the document in question, tagged with a label with my name on it, 
is handed to me by my beloved Grandma Sue just a couple of days before she died. But it was this one event that took me on the quest I'm here to share with you. A quest that was going to send me off in search of the answer to an historical whodunit to find the identity of the man in the sheepskin coat. And in asking that question, I would soon find myself asking other, more personal questions about me, my family, and the stories we've been telling each other for a hundred years since that snowy day in St. Petersburg. Grandma Sue, daughter of the Joe in question, passed away at the superior age of 94. I managed to visit her in her apartment in her last week. At that stage, she was still compass mentis. She had this package for me, inscribed with, For Jess, you'll know what to do with this. Honestly, part of me wondered if she'd got confused, as the end neared. I assumed she meant another Jess. A distant cousin or obscure academic buried deep in a university language faculty. Just not this Jess, who till that moment could only just about identify Lenin in a lineup. But of course, there was no other Jess. After the funeral, I did the decent thing and unwrapped the waxy paper. The pages of this thing were densely written. Maybe it's how people wrote back then, maybe it's how great-grandpa Joe wrote, but this manuscript is about as annotated as anything I've ever seen. Every page is written and written over, smudges and lines through things to the point it's virtually unreadable. I didn't know much about great-grandpa Joe. According to Granny Sue, he was a remote figure, a translator, and Russian was his specialism. He was also a failed author. The cautionary ancestral tale that was trotted out at family gatherings in case any of us was thinking of attempting our first novel. Money troubles plagued him all his life, as did the black dog of depression, but no one talked about that either. In the one photo we have, he's a haunted but handsome presence, but then everyone in those old photos, subject to those long exposures, seems to look dignified and handsome, or bored. To the younger me, he was an ancient person from an ancient era, and this scrappy collection of scribblings are all that remain of him in the material world. Hello? Larry? Hello, darling. The slightly affected voice you're hearing is Abraham Levy, also known as Larry, for reasons known only to him, Russian expat, ex-boyfriend, and now professor of something very important at London University. In my 21st century version of grief following Granny Sue's death, I put a semi-sarcastic post on Facebook with a photo of the manuscript and various semi-serious emojis, basically making it quite clear that I'd have preferred a family where the heirlooms were things that sparkled, you could wear on your fingers or sell, not some manky old manuscript. Larry took a different view. He'd messaged me out of the blue when he'd seen the post with the manuscript and a very small glimpse of text alluding to the assassination. Unintentional on my part, I promise. Turns out, the killing of the Russian interior minister in 1904 is one of the great unsolved mysteries of pre-Soviet history. Russia's equivalent of the grassy knoll enigma that has haunted the JFK assassination, or the mystery surrounding the crash that killed Princess Diana. My interest peaked. Larry quickly steamrolled me into a phone call, something I instantly regretted when I remembered the last time we spoke he told me he was still in love with me. 
I know this sounds arrogant, but our fling had only ever been that. But somehow, in the way these things sometimes do, I become something quite significant to him. After the fact, so to speak. Such life, I guess. Have you read it? No. It was true. I'd started on it, but to be honest, my Russian history is a blur till the Bolsheviks get going. 1917. Lenin. Trotsky. Stalin, the gulags, all of this feels like part of the common knowledge pool, right? 1904, well, that's just not the sexy stuff, is it? Wrong. What you call the sexy stuff everyone's heard of was only made possible by the people that came before. Heavens, Jess, the revolution didn't just happen out of the blue. Decades of misery and repression led to it. By 1904, Russia's crawling with radicals and revolutionaries. Marx's Das Kapital has been available for 15 years. Mm-hmm. The authorities didn't take it seriously, which was a big mistake, as he'd completely caught the imagination of the new class of literate artisan workers. And spies. St. Petersburg was crawling with bloody spies, mostly state-sponsored, infiltrating the radicals, forerunner of the KGB and its network of informers. The state was paranoid, you see, and with good reason. The old Tsar had let hundreds of thousands of peasants starve to death in the 1890s. Then Nicholas reluctantly takes over, and rather than embrace reform, he cracks down on dissent and strengthens the autocracy. The assassinated minister was the guy who was in charge of eliminating the opposition, which to these guys was pretty much everyone. And what do we know about him? He was called Vyacheslav Konstantinovich de Plechre, also known as Mr. DP by his detractors. He was an absolute fucking monster, Jess. Uh, can I say fucking? You can say it as many times as you like. Oh, so this isn't for the BBC? It isn't for anyone yet. I don't, I don't know what it is. Okay, so this Mr. Depey is responsible for untold suffering, torture, state-sponsored executions, the lot. You really should give this thing a go, after I've read it, of course. Your great-grandpops might have the answer to who the first attacker was. This is bloody gold, Jess. Yes. Maybe he'd meant to provoke me, but I was now engaged. No one was going to read this before me, least of all Larry, who would have had no qualms in using whatever revelations contained inside its dusty pages to advance his career in the equally dusty corner of academia he was perpetually trying to shake up. I make some non-committal answer, say goodbye, and immediately unwrap the pages again and start to read. What I find is even more bizarre and random than I'd expected. To my surprise, the book starts in Geneva, Switzerland. Great-Grandpa Joe is visiting the city. Why, it's not clear, but what is clear is a young woman named Natalie Halden is what keeps him there. Natalie seems to be Russian, and why she's in Geneva with her mother isn't entirely clear either. But in the early, more lucid pages of the text, Great-Grandpa Joe, who I'll just call Joe from now on, is clearly and emphatically in love with her. And I mean big, life-changing love. What's not so clear is whether she has any feelings for him. Suddenly, a man who's only existed in a photo begins to come alive. The writing is in draft form, so it's hard to get an angle on style or whether he even intended this for publication. Given the amount of scribbling in the margins, it's likely he was revising it for someone's benefit. We'd always been told he was a failed writer, that dreaded term, but maybe this one was going to be seriously considered by an editor. Maybe the failed novelist was working towards ending his dry spell.
The account of the assassination I opened with isn't where the manuscript starts, like I said. It comes in after 10 or so pages of modified descriptions of Miss Haldon, as Joe rather coyly refers to her. There is little ambiguity as to how he really feels about her. He talks of her dark complexion with red lips and a full figure. Here's an example of what I mean. She directed upon me her grey eyes, shaded by black eyelashes, and I became aware, notwithstanding my years, how attractive physically her personality could be to a man capable of appreciating in a woman something else than mere grace of femininity. Her glance was direct and trustful, yet unspoilt by the world's wise lessons. And it was intrepid, but in this intrepidity, there was nothing aggressive. And then he says this curious thing. She had never known deception, because as yet she had never fallen under the sway of passion. It was a sentence that would come to haunt me and my whole experience of this world that Joe's writing was just beginning to open up to me. As I read on, Joe's romantic tone soon gives way to something else. Joe's tentative, and I mean tentative, courtship of Natalie Halden, perpetually supervised by Natalie's mother, I might add, is interrupted by the arrival of another man into their world. Another Russian emigre, it seems, to join this small circle of apparent exiles shortly after the assassination. A man called Brezumov. As I read on, I started to get that rush when you realised you just found the thing you were looking for. Brezumov is, he has to be, the mystery assassin. And then can you help me pronounce his name? Kirilla. So that's actually the Ukrainian way of writing it. I don't know what... Anyway, Kirilla. Kirilla Sidorovich Razumov. Okay. Sorry. How would... Kirilla. Okay, Kirilla. Yeah. Sidorovich. Sidorovich. Sidorovich? Yep, perfect. Okay. Razumov. Razumov. Yeah, Rilo Sidorovich Razumov, right? Yeah. Razumov has to be the mystery assassin. Are you sure? Yes. Why? Does he actually say it? Not in so many words, but he's the one who supplies the description of the actual assassination. So who the hell is this Razumov? It was a harmless question. But in his enthusiastic way, Larry had opened up not just an important line of inquiry... The whole idea of who Razumov is, was, would become an obsession to me. That we can assume he is the man who threw the first bomb, the man in the sheepskin coat, is obvious. A former student, newly arrived from St. Petersburg, clearly in some form of exile, just a matter of weeks following the assassination. A man who seeks out Natalie Haldin, not for any coincidental reason, but, as Larry is quick to pounce on... Victor Halden was the name of the fellow they captured and executed for the crime. After the minister was killed, a suspect was arrested the following morning trying to get a ride out of the city. Now, judging by the age of these people, Victor must have been Natalie's bloody brother. So Razumov comes to be with her, what, to commiserate? It's not clear. I haven't got to the end. Someone called Pete Ivanovich has shown up and it's, it's got a bit bogged down in revolutionary theory. Well, get a move on. What I don't get is why everyone's converging on Geneva. Let me enlighten you. 
I have to give it to Larry. By sheer force of enthusiasm, he was actually making all this sound quite interesting. You have to remember, this is Russia before the revolution as we know it. In January 1905, 400,000 workers go on strike. Men, women, children take to the streets in peaceful protest. Then the Tsar sends in the Cossacks and a bunch of them are massacred. Bloody Sunday, they called it. My point being, the fact that Lenin ends up being the author of the revolution is not a given. It could have been any of these characters. We chat a bit more about Russia, about revolution. By this stage, it's pretty clear that I need to finish the manuscript, which is what I then do. I email in sick at work. It was a quiet week anyway. And I plough on through to the end. Like Larry, I find great-grandpa Joe also has a lot to say about contemporary Russian politics. You get the feeling that Geneva really was exactly as Larry described, a place of intense and fevered planning and discussion all focused on not so much the how, but the when of an attempt to overthrow the Tsar and all that he and his family of antiquated autocrats stood for. Rather than Lenin, though, it seems this little group of revolutionaries were enthralled to another charismatic, radical leader preaching revolution. The aforementioned Peter Ivanovich, of whom much more later, was the flame around whom all the other moths clustered. But it's hard to get an angle on Ivanovich from Joe's account of him. I'm not sure Joe took Ivanovich's ideas very seriously. And clearly, in relation to Marxism, Whatever Ivanovich was peddling didn't take off. Despite all these ruminations, the one person who stands out in the writing is not Natalie Halden, object of Joe's desires. No, it's Razumov. But he stands out, not because he is so well drawn, but for the opposite reason. He's mentioned a lot, but Razumov is never, ever described. There is no doubt his arrival throws Joe's plans for seducing and quite possibly marrying Natalie into jeopardy. Reading between the lines, I get the feeling Razumov was a far more enticing prospect than poor old Joe. If Razumov was a friend of Victor Halden, then he was probably a student, which makes him a contemporary of Natalie's too. So suddenly, Joe's the old one out. Joe's the older man, not by many years, but enough to just be that little bit too old when surrounded by these youthful, eros-possessed radicals. And if Razumov was the other assassin, then he was with Victor moments before he died, the last one to speak to him. None of this would have been lost on Natalie. But there's another thing that's worth mentioning. The lyricism drains from the manuscript once Razumov shows up. The account of the assassination is transcribed, like it was being spoken. But once his credentials are established, this young exile from St. Petersburg games private audiences with Natalie, who, Joe reports, is hungry for even the merest crumb of information about her brother's final days. The intensity and frequency of the encounters with Natalie really affect Joe's writing. Razumov soon becomes just R, and the abbreviation suggests not intimacy, but a pain that would be made worse were any more letters from the name committed to the page. I read on through the night. I find Joe's whole perspective shifts on the access of Razumov. 
Confined to walks with Natalie's grieving mother, Joe starts plotting interceptions, chance meetings, anything that might give him the opportunity to reclaim what he supposes was his. The woman he was destined for, until this mysterious interloper arrives to destroy his Garden of Eden. The snake, as Joe sometimes refers to Resumov, has indeed annihilated this chaste utopia Joe enjoyed with his love. But Natalie's rapid shift to Resumov suggests that, for the most part, this particular paradise was only ever a fantasy. By now, the notes are less and less legible, the writing less disciplined. Ivanovich, the charismatic revolutionary leader, returns to the narrative, proclaiming his own imminent utopia. And then, suddenly, Resumov vanishes. This ghost-like creature who stalks Joe's pages is gone. And all that refers to it is a single sentence written in a different ink, but the same hand. It is done. It is done. What the hell does that mean? My heart lurches on that line. The manuscript collapses into a prosaic account of another walk with Natalie, mother ever present, no details of what was discussed, and then, with no fanfare at all, a single sentence announcing Joe's return to London. You are going to be very pleased with me. I knew that tone too well. It's always slightly irritated me, but it was, in the end, his absolute passion, and I was prepared to indulge him while I tried to process the strange ending to Joe's book. <laughs> Get on with it. So all Larry here gets on old World Wide Web, right, and starts mm -hmm. doing some digging. Now, much as I want to believe our friend Razumov is the one who lobs bomb number one, I can't get this on record till I found at least one corroborating source. Now, he vanishes sometime between late 1904 and 1905, we think, right? Um, uh, yes, yes. I told Larry that Razumov had vanished from the book, but nothing else. He wasn't interested in great-grandpa Joe's unrequited love, that's for sure. The only thing Larry Levy was after was the incontestable truth that Razumov was assassin number two. You need to sound more excited or expectant or something more than just whatever this is. Sorry, it's a lot to process. Look, Natalie Halden stayed in Geneva and married. She had a son who in turn had two daughters. And one of them is still alive and goddammit still living in the family home in bloody Geneva. Are you sure? Yep, and I've already emailed her. You got her email address? I think you're missing the point, Jess. I have found a living descendant of Natalie Halden. A direct living bloody descendant. I open up the email. It's not very long. Dear Miss Kempfer, I assume this is the name of the Halden descendant. And then he does something quite chivalrous for Larry. He asks Mrs K if she'll speak to me, not him. I'm a bit thrown by this. But I'm also relieved. I don't know how to broach the Grandpa Joe thing, and for some reason it feels a lot easier with a total stranger. I think about this for a moment. Maybe it feels easier because it keeps it less real. Keep secret the fact that I think my great-grandpa Joe, he of the handsome, sad face, killed this Razumov. Why? Because he got close to the woman Joe loved. And why do I think this? Because I think that's what it is done means. Because it's in the subtext of those pages, in everything unsaid. 
I don't have another explanation. By innocently solving one mystery, I've just unearthed another. One that's way, way more personal. My distinguished ancestor, my blood relative, a man whose DNA has been handed down to me, may be, well, for now, most likely is, was, a killer. A murderer. A crime of passion is still a crime. He killed someone. Hello? Oh, hi. Is that Mrs. Kempfer? This is she. Are you the journalist, Jessica? Yes, I am. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How can I help? Something in her tone immediately calmed me down. It wasn't what she said. She had that direct way of speaking that always throws the English, who like a good preamble. I explained what I'd been up to, didn't mention my suspicions about my great-grandfather, just said there were some loose ends I wanted to clear up. I think my friend Larry told you I was investigating a story that involved my great-grandfather Joe and his relationship with your ancestor, Natalie. I just wanted to see if there was any light you could shed on that time, any family stories, photos, mementos. This is good. I've always wondered if someone would want to read it. <laughs> read what? The diary. Natalie kept a diary? No, not Natalie. The gentleman, Kirillo Sitorovich. Resumov? Yes. We've had it for generations. We've taken good care of it. We've kept all Natalie's mementos from that time. We have some Russian books as well. But like you, we assumed the diary was hers. But my son studied Russian for a while, and he was the one who translated the inscription at the front. Amazing, really, that it survived. I don't really know why she held on to it. Not for the first time that week, my heart was racing. I wasn't sure what my next move was, so I decided to get it over with. I'm sorry, but it's not going to leave my house, let alone Geneva. It sounded pretty final. The journalist in me was ready to go for the big sale, gain further trust, then make a second, third, fourth approach until she caved, but something in her tone told me to forget that approach. This was a 115-year-old family heirloom. I wouldn't let it out of my sight either. But you're welcome to come and see it for yourself. Ten words that would change everything. I hadn't any idea how to sell this plan to my bosses, let alone break the news to my family, but I'd already said yes before any of those thoughts bubbled to the surface. And then it hit me. Razumov's own diary was still out there, in Geneva, untouched for over a hundred years. And in a few days' time, it was going to be in my hands, and I, not Larry, not anyone, was going to be turning those pages and finding out what really happened between great-grandpa Joe, Natalie, and this man who up until now was little more than a ghost. I had one more question. Have you read the diary? No, my Russian is non-existent. And anyway, he's a terrible person. I don't want to read the diary of a traitor who broke my grandmother's heart and worse. How did you... Um, what kind of traitor? It's common knowledge in our family. Razumov was a spy. And there it was. The one single nugget I'd been after. Now I had a love triangle, a revolution, a murder, and all of it 
revolved around this enigmatic man, this Razumov, the man in the sheepskin coat. We said goodbye to each other, and I booked my flight to Geneva. To listen to the rest of the Resume of Files now, subscribe to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts, which also gives you access to episodes of True Spies and The Spying Game, a week early and ad-free. Search for Spyscape.